Welcome to the All About Alts podcast, where we explore the world of alternative investing to help you find financial independence. Join our host, Newview Trust's president, Jason DeBono, as he covers a variety of topics with different guest speakers to discuss tax and alternative investing strategies. It is never too late to start taking control of your financial future, and we are so excited for you to be joining us for this opportunity to hear from some of the best in the business. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the All About Alts podcast. I am Jason DeBono, your host, and I am joined today with Brad Seidel, and he comes to us from the Tampa Bay area. Really cool background and really cool story. Excited to chat with him. Brad, how you doing, man? Doing great, Jason. So pumped to be here. Excited to talk to everybody. Well, thanks for taking the time. You know, Brad's got a lot of stuff going on. He's got a couple of different businesses on the real estate side, both on the student housing, as well as in the tiny home space, which is so cool. And I can't wait to kind of get to that. But if you think his kind of business side is cool, his personal side's even cooler. You know, I was chatting and catching up with him. Brad, tell us a little bit about your background in the Navy. You're a pilot for the Navy. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying it. It was a blast. I was Went to the, I was at Academy Guy, Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, graduated there, went into flight school, picked up helicopters out of there and was able to fly, you know, did a bunch through the, called the rotary mission. So we trained to, you know, shooting hellfires and special operation forces and, and mostly uh, it was called maritime interdiction operations. So it was, that was a, a hell of a time being able to work with some great teams and, you know, a lot of that is the team building and the team aspect is something that I am able to take from my prior experiences and bring it into the real estate world. And it's definitely transferred very well. But it's been a blast transferring back that over to and from. Well, it's such a cool, you know, I think every kid growing up aspires to either be some sort of baseball player, football player, or a pilot. So you check that box, but also a squash player. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so squash, my, my dad is a squash professional. And so for those who know, it's a racket sport indoors. You know, I know pickleball is the craze right now. It's a little bit better of a workout, but man, it's a small community. It's a British sport. So pretty much all the international countries that were, you know, so Pakistan and Egypt and Australia and England, obviously, those are all big. So being able to travel and playing those and meeting people from around the world through that has been a very cool and unique experience. So like I said, being such a small community, yeah, it's been nice meeting people through that. Well, I'll be honest, when I saw that, I had to Google it. I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say that because I just, I had heard, you know, I've heard of squash, but couldn't tell you how it was played. And, and uh, yeah, it looks a lot like racquetball, you know, type sport indoors, but pretty cool. I watched a few videos out and I'm intrigued. Yeah, it was a blast. You know, it's one of those sports where many of the top universities play it. So it was actually a great loophole into a lot of the Ivies and, you know, getting into these top schools. So anyone out there with kids in that junior high level, I, I always recommend it because there's just not that many squash players and all these top schools have teams. So it's a good loophole into in the back door, some of these top universities. Well, my son just turned 12 a couple of days ago, so it sounds like maybe he loves pickleball. <laughs> hey, there you Absolutely go. Absolutely loves it. So maybe that's the next idea is to get him on out playing some squash. I think that's a win-win. Cool. So Brad, let's talk a little bit about the Navy. You know, I think everybody understands that the Navy prepares a lot of people for life, whatever, you know, and, and all of the armed forces certainly do, but, you know, discipline and all of those things. But you had an even kind of added element being on the pilot side and, and running some pretty cool, you know, missions and other things. So let's talk a little bit about 
how have you taken a lot of those experiences, both just general armed services experience, and then how are you translating those into your day-to-day life outside now that you're full-time in real estate? That's an awesome question. Because you know what the thing is, you think of pilot, you think of like, I always thought of like sexy flying and doing this cool stuff, but there's so much effort that goes in before the takeoff, right? Like days and hours and hours worth of planning and pre-planning and more meetings. And there's so much energy into making sure that this is going to be a successful and and well-executed mission. I think that's completely misunderstood that it's just, hey, we strap up and and fire up the engines and, and go kick butt. But really, it's just so much energy and planning. And so that planning aspect is no different for a flight mission than it is for picking up a tiny home community or a student housing facility or whatever, you know, the underwriting needs to be there. You need to flush out what are all the risks? How can we mitigate them? And man, it's, as I said before, it's definitely been so helpful understanding, seeing high-performing teams function and what it is to do that and to go execute at the highest level and then turn that into the real estate world where, hey, we know that there are risks and we know what could possibly go wrong and here's how we're going to mitigate it and here's how we're going to execute it. And that has been invaluable to me and and my team, you know, being able to lean on those experiences and knowing that nothing's by the seat of your pants, even if it looks like it, it's really because the planning was so good that you're able to kind of pivot as need be. And you do in this world, right? In the real estate world, things are going to pop up, you know, just like any other flight mission. And yeah, you need to pivot. And that's done through superior planning. Well, I love that you brought up that kind of planning piece. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at real estate as well as they see that you go to the closing table and you buy the real estate and everything's good (laughs) and great. And that's just how it works. And, you know, you nailed it right on the head, which is really, you know, it's all the pre-planning. I mean, you know, you probably look at a hundred deals just to even put an offer in on a couple, let alone get one closed. So I think we're all a little bit spoiled in the way we look at things. You know, we have kind of a unique perspective and certainly watching things like Top Gun and other movies, right? It just does. It looks like you just hop in the seat and the mission kind of happens. But I'm sure there's countless hours, you know, spent kind of planning and good planning creates great execution and doesn't always go the way you want it to. But being able to pivot is a result of kind of thinking things through. So, you know, Brad, what's a typical you know, from a pre-planning standpoint, you know, not so much your underwriting details, but kind of walk us through when you're out looking for property or investments, you know, what's kind of the process that you and your team are going through bit by bit? And how have you used some of those previous experiences, you know, back in your time in in the Navy to kind of prep your team and be able to navigate the team to make, you know, hopefully some offers and get some executed agreements? It's actually kind of funny how very similar it is. People just in the military, everyone's specialized. You've got your armaments people, you've got your engine people that work on engines and the pilots and the intel people. Well, we do this something very, very similar when we're running through markets. We need to have our operations guy. We need to have our institution underwriting person, our marketer, and we're all go together. And it's it's so important to have everyone's One is putting together this team, right? That going even further back and not just surrounding yourself with people that are like you, but people that are seeing different aspects of this. It's so important to be able to. And then what we do is we'll walk through, you know, these different markets that we like together and the different viewpoints that are brought up when you have these specialized little niches that people are looking at this. I'll, I'll just be looking at this from the eyes of, you know, operations or from the eyes of, 
hey, where can we find the next, you know, squeeze the next CapEx dollars? And that person's job for that view or for that for that visit is just that. So when you're on that narrow scope, you really do pick up some amazing details that if you're looking at the broad picture, you're going to really miss these. And that's something that our team does very well. I and mean, again, it's the same thing from the military. You know, like we have Intel guys that are telling us exactly that, but we don't ask them, you know, what weapons should be shot. They just tell you, this is the Intel side and this is what you're expecting. So it translates well, and you're going to be able to really get the highest and best use of everybody that's at the property. Once they're focused, you know, you put the blinders on, this is what you're looking for. And we're able to really break down a property pretty well and pretty quickly when you have a good team that's focused on what we call our high yield aspects to a property. And yeah, we're churned through them and we're always looking for the gem and they're, they're out there. There's no question, but that's how we find them. We unearth them that way. Well, it it sounds a lot like, you know, letting people specialize in the areas that they're good at and not worrying about, you know, what the guy or girl to their left or right is doing, but sounds like a very good strategy and certainly can see how that translates very well from missions and things that are being done through the Navy or any of the armed services. How'd you get into real estate, right? I mean, you're, you're a squash player, you're a Naval pilot, you know, for a, a poor pun, how'd you make such a sharp turn and end up in real estate? That's a good question. You know, real estate being in something that's in the squash world, right? It's a very wealthy individuals that are there. And all through growing up, you overhear things you within this, I call investing real estate, the wealthy cheat code, you know, and I mean that because once you when you truly understand all the tools that are out there at your disposal, well beyond anything I had imagined, I thought it was just you buy these and you're going to make money through the income. But there's so much more there. And it was really through education of of the people who have made their millions and are kind of whispering in my ear, say, hey, man, like, you know, aviation is great. But, you know, if you're going to make it to the next level, it's not going to be through as an airline pilot. It's going to be through real estate. And once I dove in myself, did my own research and what that means, there is no question that it's part of every wealthy person's portfolio. And it just it got me ignited in that. It's like I knew that one, it's a tangible asset, just like an aircraft. I'm there. I'm touching it. I like that. I like to be able to see what I'm working with, you know, stocks and stuff. It's too out there. It's not tangible. It's not empirical. I want like that concrete feel, pun intended, where it's actually like you can touch it. And those are the aspects of real estate. So one being told by the people that get it and that have been doing it, that are hanging out at the squash club, hey, this is how I did it. And two, it's a tangible asset. And those things combined, it's tough to turn that down and keep flying when there's these huge opportunities that abound in the real estate world. Yeah, it's, you know, real estate is without a doubt the greatest wealth building tool. And for some, it's wealth building, some it's wealth preservation. But but the key is, you know, if you're going to transition from making money into building wealth, it's almost always centered around real estate, at least for the masses. And, you know, I think the thing for me that I always come back to on real estate is it's the it is the wealthy cheat code that is readily accessible by everyone. Right. I mean, it's I really the one, so true. one universal thing we can all do, whether we do. And, and sure, you know, the more money you have in your bank account, the easier it is to go out and enter the market. But being successful in real estate is not, you know, how big is your bank account? It's underwriting and all those things, you know, Brad, that, that you and your team work on. You know, I love talking about your background and just general backgrounds and understanding how people get into to where they are. As a lot of people want to get into real estate. And I think this is another example that it doesn't matter what you've done to date. And 
being an airline pilot for you may have been a fantastic career had you made that choice. And there would have been nothing wrong with that, but you would have missed the opportunity that real estate is providing you. So I think, you know, I, I hear a big, strong lesson to our listeners is don't think too much about you know, your career path, think about where you want to be. And, and if your career path gets you there, great. And if it doesn't, you know, much like Brad's done, maybe time to look elsewhere and real estate always is an attractive option. Well, I'm excited to get in. You know, we haven't really talked about student housing and we certainly haven't talked about tiny homes, which is super cool, you know, on the show yet. So we're going to transition into that. But before we do, we're going to get to my favorite segment of the show. which is the quirky questions of the day. So Maggie is grabbing the envelopes. Remember, if you have questions, these are all listener submitted. So if you have questions you want to get us uh, and get us to put into our envelopes here, email our show producer, Maggie with a Y at newviewtrust.com. All right, Brad, you ready? Ready, set. Quirky questions of the day. Here we go. Question number one, who was your childhood hero? Oh, man. So having a dad that's a pro athlete kind of makes that pretty easy for me. Watching him, you know, perform at a top level, understanding what it means to, and it really continues to where I'm at now, understanding that being pushed and being uncomfortable is needed to be successful. And that's all from my dad. It's part of be training to a top level. And man, has it been useful in real estate and understanding like this is hard. And this is a steep learning curve. And that's where the success lies is beyond that, that pain, that pain curve is what he calls it. So it's definitely my dad. How cool. Love, uh, absolutely love that. All right. If you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be and why? <laughs> Probably a squash. I'm a gourd. You know, you hang out. I don't go bad very quickly. And obviously, the I can't tell you how many times I'll wear a squash shirt. And people think I'm a squash farmer and I'm just a very proud blue ribbon squash guy. So I would say, yeah, the gourd, a squash. I mean, that one is just almost too good to not pass up. I love it. All right. So if you were a superhero, what would your superpower be? Wow. That's a great question, man. I would say to, I've always wanted to have the ability just to fly. And obviously you think that it's no big deal, but the amount of energy goes into prepping for a flight and just being able to like fly would be up there. So flight would be my choice without having to pre-flight and without having to check engines, just, you know, lift my arms and go. Up and go. Well, I think, man, it would be a nice treat and certainly a nice trick if you could do that. But yeah, flying is super cool. I feel like almost some of these you know, they played very well into your background. <laughs> that is certainly by accident, but glad that we could get through those. There you go, everybody. Thank you, Brad, for participating in the quirky questions of the day. Let's turn the tables, right? We talked a little bit about your background and how you've used your naval experience and, and flight preparation to kind of prep you for real estate. Let's talk a little bit about what you do. You know, so you've got a couple different businesses, one that deals with syndicating student housing, which is a pretty cool and, and certainly a rapidly changing environment through COVID and all of that. And we can talk about that. And then you're on the side of tiny homes, you know, helping people gain access to and invest into tiny homes, which is, you know, something that's continuing to grow in popularity. And, and certainly here in Florida, we're seeing even more and more of that, especially with some of the 
you know, legislative changes that are making it even more attractive. So why don't we start on the student housing side if we can, just for, you know, maybe the sake of discussion, Brad, and for our listeners, you know, just define kind of student housing in your eyes and kind of the way you guys look at it and, and what does that mean so we can frame the rest of our discussion. Absolutely. So it's, I call it student housing has been so exciting for us. Student housing is a subsection of multifamily. And through discrimination laws, we can't say only students of this school can live here. However, if you can remember to, or can think about what it's like living around, you know, 18 to 21 year olds, it does sort of weed itself out. So we cannot say, oh, you have to be a student there to live there. But it's something that we have noticed. It's the camaraderie. It's the group of for students that want to live close to campus. Preferably all of our properties are going to be pedestrian or walking to campus. And, you know, all that is, is, is providing a top place to live for them. That's not your standard. Like, I think a lot of people think about the places with like head through the drywall and like a busted shack that they live in. You know, it's actually very interesting when you provide these students a great, a great housing experience with brilliant, you know, finishes and, and a great location. They really do take good care of it. So we've had a great opportunity in providing homes for these students and, and young professionals because a lot of recent graduates enjoy continuing to live in our properties as well. But, you know, it's very important to understand your avatar, right? Like who you're selling things to. And for us, it's the student that's wanting to walk to and from the school and live around their peers. You know, a lot of our properties are geared towards, hey, when you want to close your door and study and do your own thing, you can. And when you want to open up and socialize, the opportunity is there for you. And, you know, it's definitely, we're very proud of our properties because it's a place where parents can also feel comfortable because again, I think a very cool aspect of student is the mom and dad are guaranteeing these leases. So it's not the kid. It's, and so therefore if they're paying for mom and dad are paying, they want to feel comfortable dropping their kid off there. And, you know, it's not going to be that, that shack down the street with the drywall messed up. So it's such a cool, I say cool because you brought up COVID, Jason. It's that was student housing's, you know, recession. Because yeah. during real recessions, everyone goes back to school. It's our best time is during recessions. So nothing's recession proof in my mind, but man, student housing is a darn good alternative when you're worried about 2023. Many of our investors were a little shaky, a little scared what's going to come in the future. But knowing that and knowing that we've gotten through COVID, it's been, you know, Student housing has been great. Actually, we just, Wall Street Journal just threw out an article yesterday showing that in all of commercial real estate, the bright spot is student housing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could see that. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you point out kind of the inverse relationship with recessions, you know, that student housing has. And I, you know, that's something I haven't really thought about or heard anyone wouldn't talk about. But, you know, the world of student housing has changed. You know, I graduated college about 20 years ago and just seeing it progress and going back to campus where I went to school and seeing some of these complexes now. I mean, it's unbelievable now, you know, and with parents being the guarantor, it's amazing to me the disposable amount of income that a lot of college students have and how much money they can dedicate towards housing. So it it seems like all the things are playing very well into that. Let's talk a little bit about COVID, not so much about what it did, because that's in the past. You know, let's talk about how it's changed the market. So, you know, what are you guys seeing? Are there trends that have carried on? Certainly distance learning is a contributor, but, 
you know, what are you seeing as a maybe a post-COVID environment as it relates to some of the student housing that you guys own and manage? Oh, man, I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a question we're asked all the time. And it's interesting how, think about this, you're a 20-year-old, you've been living with mom and dad, you're a junior, and you've been living with mom and dad for the last year and a half because COVID had, you know, had forced you home, you're having to do classes online. And we have, you've seen this increase in online classes. But what is overwhelmingly interesting is the response for these kids couldn't wait to get out of their mom and dad's basement back into properties like our own and and others like it and get back into their own peer community. It's been overwhelming. And when we're looking at the data, we were also a little fearful back in 2021. Look at all these online. And a lot of them have online is still growing and it, it will, but these kids have come back in force. And mainly because it is like it or not, college is a social experiment of sort for them to grow and, and to learn in that way as well. And the kids have come back because there's a lot there where it's, I can't do this at mom and dad's anymore. <laughs> I need to leave. I need space. I need to. And that if you think about your college experience, I'm sure you feel the same way. You're like, this is my time. I'm away from them. Like, I got to learn this stuff. And the parents feel that way too. This isn't just the, the kid. The parents understand like, you need to do this stuff on your own away from our, our roof. So yeah, great question because COVID did show those things. Online learning is still going up, but contrary to popular belief, majority of universities are showing a rise in enrollment. In every market we're in, that's where we're yeah we mandate that. That's that's going to be a, a baseline for our foundation on wherever we're looking. Well, and that's not surprising. You know, it's if you think about it. You know, when we think about work from home and some of the trends that we're seeing grow, you know, work from home has a lot of value and benefit in the eyes of the beholder. If you go back to, you know, remote learning, there's not a lot of desire for students to do that unless they were already predisposed to do that. I mean, if I wanted to live at home when I was in college, I could have done that and gone to the community college or whatever, you know. I didn't want to do that. I mean, part of that experience, and I think it works equally as important as the parents. You know, there's an element to them that I can imagine they don't want their kids at home. Not that they don't love their kids and want to spend time with them, but you've got all these forces that are pushing kids back to school. And certainly the numbers are representing that. What's the biggest challenge, you know, if you strip away COVID and, you know, some of the things that can come from that, but just what are some of the challenges that people may not be aware of as it relates to student housing or things to think about? that's a little bit different than maybe being in traditional multifamily or in single family rentals? Yeah, a lot of the challenge for us is just education in the sense that, you know, when you're dealing with, I guess, media in general and what people believe to be their, you know, they look back at maybe their own college experience or crazy parties, you know, the new generation, I'm obviously very much generalizing, either they're, either we're targeting because we do class A and a top caliber of student that we don't really have to worry about these things, but, or there's just not as crazy in the sense of, you know, like I said, the damage, damage is always the biggest thing people worry about. And we do too, but we have not seen it. And it, it's not, this isn't like a recent thing. This is, you know, we've got student housing, our, our chief operations officer has been doing this for 18 years. And it's just not as once you put it in the right setting, and this is probably good for a lot of multifamily in general too, right? If you think about class D's and class C's and the in the ghettos or something, yeah, you're going to deal with some different caliber of people. But in the end, for student, it's very similar. You got If you got a nice product, people are going to treat it well. And if they don't, the few that don't, 
just like anywhere else. This is backed up by mom and dad's money. It's just tough to, once that understanding kind of clicks for people, they want more and more. But it's scary at first thinking about, you know, kids ruining your your investment. And I get that. I definitely get that. But yeah, so I, you know, the biggest barrier is going to be the education piece for the investor. And once we sit down with anybody, I'm, that's why I'm so happy to be talking about it now. There's a lot of risk mitigators. And that's what we talk to, risk mitigators. There's always going to be risks in wherever you're doing. But the mitigators in student housing are very fundamentally solid. And again, once that conversation's had, typically investors like to proceed forward. Well, student housing, that backstop of having a, a guarantor, you know, is such a big piece, you know, in terms of getting rent paid. And I won't pretend to know the numbers, but my understanding is that student housing defaults and delinquencies are significantly lower than traditional multifamily, you know, type delinquencies just because you've got you know, incentive for the individual doesn't want to have to leave school. They don't want to have to, they may be transient, but they still certainly, you know, and then also they're being, a lot of these are being paid for out of funds or prepaid college programs or savings programs. So they're not necessarily income dependent, although certainly there are some parents that are using their income to subsidize their kids' housing. So having those backstops in any real estate or heck, any investment is is always a major, major bonus, something that I'm always attracted to. You're absolutely right. Anytime you have your risk, hey, what are the, and we call it the Swiss cheese model. If all these things can go wrong at once, you're going to possibly have a default on your capital call in the syndication world. So you add all these mitigators. Can problems still go through? Absolutely. But if you've got three or four lined up, and, and honestly, most do stop at the guarantor. But you continue on with, as you mentioned, their social circle is typically based on where you live. Like think about your own, like where you're at. In my neighborhood, I'm friends with my neighbor. I don't want to leave all my friends. I enjoy living where I live. And that's another risk mitigator that's not, it's hard to conceptualize and put on paper, but it's just, it's the God's honest truth. Like these people, these students are living with their peers and their friends. That is another thing. Like once you, if you were to threaten that, they go, oh, you're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'm, I'm going to write the ship and Take, let's take care of this because I don't want to leave my friends where I'm living around. You know, student housing always has a place and, and certainly that market, you know, with the exception of kind of a COVID related environment, you know, continues to perform and perform well. So love student housing. Think it's a great asset class, one that very few people really see or, or know or understand. So I, I appreciate you shedding some light on that. And I want to make sure we shift gears while we got a little bit of time left and talk about tiny homes because that's a, a whole nother, you know, avenue. And I think people maybe have heard, you know, there's, I think, some the State Farm She Shed commercial. So people kind of have these little ideas, but what's a tiny home, right? What is it in general terms? And then let's talk a little bit about the whys behind tiny home communities and why they're popping up left and right. Right. Yeah. I mean, so they, they're becoming wildly popular and all they are is by the strict definition, it's 450 square feet or less. But I've seen, just because I'm in the world, very successful 600 square foot homes, and they're called or accessory dwelling units if you're adding them to a single family home, which I hope we get to talk to because it's another amazing tool for investors and homeowners alike. It's one of my favorite out there. But these are homes that if anyone's spending time in Europe, you, you've probably had to deal with like maybe a Murphy bed or, or like a table that folds out. I've always found that stuff very interesting, right? Like kind of feats of engineering and how you can fit things from a tiny space into or larger things into this tiny space. 
And a lot of that, a lot of the people are just, they're minimalists. They want to get rid of tiny home world. They want to get rid of their material stuff. They want to live simply. They want to have a small footprint. And really it starts with, I mean, you know, you guess it, the price tag on a 450, 600 square foot tiny home is not going to set you back the same as, as your traditional home. And that gives them a lot of flexibility to travel and to, or just to spend it on whatever the heck else they want. It's also why I love the tiny homes paired with single family homes, because it's going to help these homes cash flow, utilizing the rent from the other. And now instead of all this money, you know, your biggest expense is going to be your mortgage or your rent. Uh, that's going to be for 99% of people. The fact that we can now use that and offset those costs, and again, use it for what you want, traveling on the family or, or, or another property or another investment. But tiny homes is around to stay. There's it's, you know, as this housing crunch continues yeah. and prices for all the equipment and for all of our, what they call all the materials are continuing to skyrocket. It's around for, for the long haul. It's also, once you see these, you'll, my goal with all the tiny homes that we've ever built is for you to be like, man, I could live there. Even though it's 450 square feet, I, I could do that. And that's, that's always been my goal on that stuff. It's, uh, it's been fun. I didn't know much about it until a friend of mine was actually traveling and they have two kids and they said, oh, we, we rented two tiny homes. And I'm like, you know, talk to me about this. And, you know, it's a community and it, it looks, you know, instead of being in a hotel, you feel like you're in a cabin or, but they absolutely loved it. Their kids still talk about it, which is so cool. I mean, that it's not just a tiny home that's there for sight. It actually has function and it's something that, that people do talk about. You brought up the ADUs, right? The accessory dwelling units. So ADUs for, for acronym. That's the part that I think our listeners probably should be the most intrigued with and should know the most about because it's really not, you know, this show is not about personal consumption. Although there's always an element to that, it's how do we make more money, right? How do we build more wealth? And we do that by making good sound investments. And we also do that by coupling good tax strategy inside it, right? We talk a lot about self-directed IRAs and using retirement accounts to shield that tax. But if you are, are out there today and you're, you're already using your retirement account, you already have some single family rentals, right? This ADU concept is a great bolt on because it allows you to add, right, to an existing structure. So let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, Brad, how's that work for someone? Let, let's use the single family example. Someone's got a single family already. How do they use this ADU, add a tiny home to their property? What does that look like? What are some of the boundaries? Just kind of start some dialogue on that. Yeah. I mean, man, I, I'm so glad you brought it up. This is such a tool. I mean, if we could just zoom in on this part for this, it, it would be worth your time and mission here. The AD, accessory drilling unit, ADU, the whole reason why I'm saying this is around to stay is I'm following legislation. This is federal legislation and it trickles down into the counties, into the states, into the cities. But really in February of this year, 2023, Federally speaking, you can now use your projected income from what your the structure to qualify for more through Freddie May. And so with that being said, what we're doing is we're taking a home where if you were to have to leave, and then this is the case in almost in many of the larger metropolitan areas now, that single family home will not cash flow. It sucks. It, it just is like the home price has gone up too much. Rent isn't going to keep up with that. And in order for this, when you, when, you know, in order for your home, that investment that you're in, or if you're living in it, whatever it is, you build this additional unit. Think about it. You're not bringing in new utilities from the street. You're not buying the land. You're just adding the structure there. But the rents, although it's a smaller unit, 
And again, legislation is going to make this change. It could be, you know, where I'm at, I can build to 950 square feet of accessory dwelling, you know, which I have in my backyard now. It's amazing. But some limits of 600 or 450. But the point is that rent for a four, for even a 600 is going to be well and above, you know, you might heard the 1% rule, right? Is for a napkin, bar napkin math, right? If it's a $100,000 home, I need to get $1,000 per rent in order to really have that margin. And then there's like this mythical, 2% rule that was around in like 2012 when things were like looking bad and you look back now and you're like, man, I wish I bought. Well, that ADUs hit that 2% rule more often than not. So that can now, all that extra margin comes over to your, your single family home that you've invested in. And now overall, this property is cash flowing like a, like a, like a boss. It's, I call it, I call it the rich man's duplex. You know, we use renovation loans. There's a lot of easy ways to get this money. Obviously, people have a ton of equity right now in HELOCs, right? A lot of people's investment properties have gone up quite a bit. And if you've got the space, again, it's all legislation-based, but this legislation is changing. Like today, every day it's changing. I, I'm, I can't keep up with it. More and more comes out every year of this year. And it's really to help density and to help for housing. Yeah. But man, it's you know mathematically, when you sit down and you look at your investment, adding accessory dwelling unit will help cash flow in, in any I guess I can't say any, never say 100% of anything, but in most, this is something that I believe everyone should be looking into. I'm using it. I've been using it. My investment properties all cash flow like wildly because of it. And you know, I'm just so happy to like put it out there for people just to look into it. It's definitely worth looking into. It's quick, quick math, you know, give your city a call or, or give, you know, I'm with Tiny Home Geniuses. We've helped, you know, countless people now figure it out, run through the, the process. This is, it's game changing, guys. This is game changing. Again, because this time last year, majority of places, they, they weren't, weren't allowing it. California was the exception. They've been dealing with a housing crisis since 2018. They're a little ahead of the curve, but no, this is nationwide now. This is federal. This is a big deal. Yeah, I think it's definitely something I love, you know, the idea of following legislation that usually gives you some insight. And when you, you know, always try to look at legislation and kind of understand its its basis, right? What's the why behind it? The why is so painfully obvious, right? We have all this property that exists, but for them to go out and, and really for, for cities, communities, marketplaces to go out and add homes, it's a big process. It's labor intensive. It's time consuming. You have zoning requirements. A lot of these places may not have the infrastructure. That could be roadways. It could be a variety of things. To be able to increase density within reason, right, depending on the, the city, county, municipality, but to be able to increase density in an already existing populated area that already has all the infrastructure, already has everything built in, you know, allows these cities to really expand the footprint without expanding their footprint. So I can see why these cities and counties are getting behind this. And then when you couple that with this workforce, you know, housing solution that we have and affordable housing, you know, people should be more of a minimalist, right? I mean, you know, you can only afford to live where you can afford to live. And at some point, something has to change. And if rent's not going to come down, then you've got to find ways to find more affordable rent. So, you know, we had pad split on the show previously, which is a, another solution for workforce housing. And I, I see this as being an extension of that workforce housing or small family housing solution that really is not a, there's just no solution out there for, you know, young couples, single, you know, individuals 
but a tiny home can serve that marketplace so well, and it can do it in a more affordable manner, a more economical manner for everybody. But I love the numbers, Brad. I mean, we were looking at some examples, Brad and I were chatting last week, and you know, to be able to go out and, and, and take fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars of equity, you know, out of a property that you already have and put in this, you know, ADU that can bring in nine hundred, a thousand, twelve hundred bucks, which is very affordable to the person on the other end in this brand new, you know, smaller footprint, but brand new dwelling, man, those numbers just make sense. They do. If you look around and I and I implore people to do this and I, Ever since working with tiny homes, I now I, I can't stop seeing it. But new builds, people tell me, well, Brad, there's a lot of new density. I look everywhere. No one is building this market that Jason just brought in, right? This 900, hell, up to like, I'll even give you up to 2,000, right? There's not a lot of builds there. And as I continue to look, and i am always got my eye open, people are building out to the two grand to 2,500 a month rent. But you, these, like you said, this is 70, 80 grand to, to build to for 1500. That's that 2% rule we talked about that doesn't exist anywhere else. And now you've got a, a huge population. Do not worry about renting it out. This is such a need that it is, it is palpable when you look around and you, you, and again, I'm speaking from experience when I rent out mine, it is, I've got a waiting list of people waiting to come in because brand new. And because there's just not a lot of homes at that price, not a lot of, especially nice ones. I mean, there's those, those dilapidated, you know, things, but when it's a, a smaller home, like you brought up Jason, and that's brand new, or it's something that's falling apart at the same price, it's a no brainer. And people are so thankful to have a nice place to live. And just like we talked to in the student housing, and I love that this ties in, people are worried, well, if it's a, it's a lesser tenant, if, you know, these are, you know, rough around the edges, people, if you have a nice product, same thing with students. They take care of it. They do because you're providing something that's a, it's a housing, it's a need, but it's also, it's nice. And people, doesn't matter who they are, if they're a blue collar worker or whatever, they want a place that's nice. It doesn't mean like fixtures need to be super nice, but a new, you know, quality home is appreciated no matter what. And again, we see it in student housing. I see it with this tiny homes. It's definitely, again, there's the demand is certainly there for it. I got some advice from a, an old real estate mentor that had said, your tenants will treat the property the way you treat it. And if you well put said. them in a in a nice place and you treat it nicely, and if they call you and tell you something's not working and you fix it and you do all the things that make them feel like they're in a nice place, they will treat it like a nice place. And it doesn't mean you can't have bad tenants. And that just comes with the territory. But you know, and and my experience has really been along those lines is if you put people in something that's nice, regardless of the geographic area, regardless of, you know, whether or not your your tenant is an A plus tenant or a B plus or a C plus, everybody deep down wants to take care of their stuff. And they they everyone has pride in, in what they have. And, you know, just because they rent it doesn't mean they don't appreciate it or have pride in it. So I think when you look at this, this tiny home market, you know, these ADUs, these are brand new. You know, you're building this. This is people moving into something that really has that brand new look and feel. And while it's smaller, everything else about it looks just like new construction. And, and that's very attractive and naturally gets you good quality renters, but also it's going to get you that top dollar on the rent side. Well, Brad, you know, I, I love the fact that we could kind of toggle between two different topics on you know, both the tiny home side as well as student housing. And, you know, I wish we had a little bit more time to, to dig even deeper, but we'll certainly get back to that. We'll, we'll make sure to get all your contact info, Brad, into the show notes. Let's come down the home stretch here. 
I've got some lightning round questions I want to throw at you real quick. Then we'll put a bow on this. We'll talk a little bit about our learn before you burn and, and we'll get some good experience out uh, and a good lesson to our listeners. But a couple of quick questions on the hot seat here in our lightning round. All right, Brad, number one, what's your favorite aircraft to fly? I'm going to go with the T-34 Charlie Mentor. It's a turbopropped. You have the single yoke and it's, it's, it's canopied. So if a fire comes, it's not pressurized. You just open the canopy up. It was our training aircraft. It'd been around. It's tried and true. It's a badass aircraft. A lot of fun aerobatics with it, pulling plenty of Gs, and but still, it's a workhorse. Reminds me of like an F Ford 150. You know, it's just gonna get the job done, and it's a uh, <laughs> it's a great it's a great bird. I love it. Well, as an F 150 guy myself, I I appreciate the comparison. All right, m- more on the business side. What's the worst investment you've ever made? Oh man, I started. That's tough because I've made a bunch. <laughs> I started a dropshipping company. And really, the only reason it's bad is because I trusted that I wouldn't have to do the planning. Remember, we talked about that early on, like, hey, you need to plan, you need to have the understanding. I thought I could push this off to a third party and just let it be passive. And passive income is very much a possibility, comma, after you've done your homework and you know what the hell is going on. And I just got taken out to lunch, man. They, the guy moved to Panama City, Panama, and he's can't be found. He took everyone's money. It was bad. But it really stemmed from me not knowing and not doing my planning and my research up front. You know, anyone that's looking at not necessarily ours, but as a limited partner in any sort of syndication, you really your only job is due diligence. Like that is it. Do your due diligence. I did not do mine. And I it, it irks me to this day even talking about it. But yeah, it won't happen again. I know that. <laughs> All right. Well, you absolutely touched on the the number one issue for for most bad investments, and and it's something that you know we continue to preach. And I appreciate you reminding people that due diligence is your job. You know, I think sometimes there's this world of passive investing, which has grown in popularity, and and you know you're on the syndication side, you have passive investors, so it's it's great. But passive investing is not an excuse to invest money where you don't know where it's going or who's managing it or how it's going to you know, come back in totality. So due diligence is key. Third question here, and, and I actually touched a little bit on this, so I've got to tweak this question a little bit. It's a squash related. I was going to ask how you got into it, but given that, uh, that your dad was a professional squash player, that makes that a little harder. What would be the thing that you would say about squash that nobody knows? Obviously, you know, we don't know what a lot of people may not know the game itself, but what would be the thing about squash that maybe people don't know, aside from the fact that it's a game played with a racket? Yeah, you know what is interesting as a fitness fanatic, you know, it's it, squash is the best way to burn calories. It beats rock climbing. I think Forbes does this article every year. Squash is always the top. Uh, rowing is up there. Rock climbing's up there. There's a few, but squash always tops it off. Calories per hour run around this little court lunging because the balls, unlike racquetball where the ball is coming to you, you're having to run to the ball. And you know, it's great about squashes and you, you don't even realize it. you're just worried about getting to the ball and what the next shot's going to be. And then sure enough, you, <laughs> you're, you've been sprinting around for a half hour and you've, it's uh, it's exhausting, but that's little known oh. is it's the best calorie per hour exercise out there. 
Well, that is definitely a, something I had no idea of. I, I can imagine it's an intense game, but good to know for those needing to burn some calories and enter into a market maybe that they've never participated in. So squash is the solution. Well, you know, Brad, thank you so much for just taking the time to join us, you know, and sharing your expertise. You're really kind of entering and working in two really cool marketplaces and, and asset classes that I think, you know, people really should be taking a hard look at. You mentioned some of the recession-proof strategies and opportunities. And, and then, you know, this follow the legislation is, is such a great line and such a great way to be thinking about investments and tiny homes are, are really providing that. So I, I think it's been a wealth of knowledge. Brad, we'll throw all your contact information into the show notes. If you guys want to chat further about, you know, anything that we talked about today, certainly, you know, Brad will welcome the opportunity to chat with you and, and share his expertise. So before we bring the show to a complete close, we always wrap up with our learn before you burn. So this is the opportunity, Brad, for you to, you know, help our listeners get the lesson out of something that you learned, you know, through experience, which a lot of times can be painful. So yeah, Brad, what's your learn before you burn? Learn before you burn. There's a, for those that are doing their due diligence, we talked to due diligence being such a big deal. If you're at a conference, right? People, I meet more people and I see it because my, this is my burn, right? I just want to let people know. Everyone is there to network and learn and to figure out what the best passive income strategy is or whatever conference you're at. Everyone is already there to meet you. I remember sitting there and being like, uh, wasting my time and energy. Everyone seemed like they were there already new people or they were already so far ahead. But coming there and understanding when you are in these networking environments that people want to talk to you, like just you being whoever the heck you are, they came to talk to you. That, that's why they paid the money. That's why they're at the conference. And I spent way too much time feeling like I'm a pilot and not a real estate person or if I'm and, and this can transfer in anything, especially if you're looking at passive income ways, you might not have all the answers. No one cares, man. To be able to just go and talk and understand that people in these conferences are there to speak to you and you exactly how and who you are at this very moment. It was a big eye opener for me. And I know that there's plenty of people that feel that way because it's intimidating, like public speaking, that kind of thing kind of transfers down to this. That's the big burn. What a waste of my time. And then you, and it clicks and you're like, what? Everyone just wanted to hear your story anyways. There's nothing, it's not that intimidating. So I hope that clicks with someone out there that's going to these events. I think it's fantastic advice. I know I've been on the side of that where you're you're timid and and you always wonder and they're already talking, they know each other and the reality is they know each other but they'd actually rather be talking to someone else. They're there, <laughs> they can talk on the phone, they already know each other. So I think that's fantastic advice if you're out networking or trying to build your business, your brand whether it be passive active or anything in real estate, it starts with a good network and you can't get a good network without getting uncomfortable or getting comfortable being uncomfortable and going and chatting with these people. And I'm going to heed that advice at my next event and remind myself that, you know what, Brad's right. These people are here to talk. Don't be scared to go up and say hi and, and introduce yourself. So I absolutely love that. Brad, thank you for being here. We really you, appreciate Jason. your time. This is awesome. I hope that there's real value. I'd love to talk more for anyone that has any questions on it. So happy to be working with New View. I, I know I didn't get to tell anybody on this, but I give everyone that leaves the military, I'm always bringing them to the self-directed IRA is up there with the ADU tiny home hack. Man, what a great tool. Uh, thank you for having me on and, and New View continues to be a great partner for us. Appreciate it a lot. Thanks for being here, Brad. If you guys want to reach out to Brad, you've got uh, all of his contact info in the show notes. 
If you have not hit the like, share, and subscribe button, please do. Also, if you've been listening and and you like the content, please leave us that five-star review. Our goal is to continue to grow the community of listeners and just continue to educate the market with people like Brad and subjects like tiny homes and student housing and and just bringing things to light that may not be put out in, in front of people too often. So hopefully everyone enjoyed today's show. We appreciate you guys being here. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening. We hope the information within this podcast has given you the tools that you need to find your way to financial independence. We would love to partner with you on this journey. Text ALTS, that's A-L-T-S, to 407-708-1853 to learn more about how to get started today. Don't forget to follow us to make sure you don't miss a second of content, and we'll see you next week.